You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Good morning, church. As we enter and get ready to enter into our sermon, I want to prepare our hearts with a couple verses from the scripture that we're going to be preaching from this morning. As we continue in our sermon series, The Unseen King, we'll be in Esther 3 today, and Pastor Jeremy is going to bring the word to you in just a moment. If you have your Bible, you can open it, open your app, or you can read on the screen. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 4 in Esther 3 today. It says, after these things, King Hashuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. Father God, as Pastor Jeremy begins to bring the word to your people, I pray that it doesn't lie lightly on the hearts of your people. God, that you are seeing through the scriptures today, that it empowers your people, and God, that, that the sermon that Jeremy preaches brings you glory and transform the heart of those here. God, I pray that Jeremy is hidden behind the cross and that you in all of your glory is known this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Patrick. Well, good morning, New Heights Church. Um, it's good to worship with you all today. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Jeremy, the, the other Jeremy, the other pastor on staff. Before we um, get going, I need to dismiss kids second through fourth. If you have kids second through fourth, go towards, you see Tina and Amanda, they're going to be heading over to the gym uh, with them. Thank you guys for truly serving in that capacity. Go ahead straight back. There you go. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, last time on Esther... I want to catch you guys up in case some of you missed. Uh, in chapter 1 of Esther, we saw a prideful and insecure king throw a banquet, right, to show off all that he acquired, including his wife. And if you remember, he told his wife to bear her beauty and all to, to the kingdom so all of the, uh, the provinces could see exactly what he had acquired as, as his wife. And, of course, she refused, and she was dismissed as queen. In chapter 2, we met Mordecai a Jewish man who serves the king and, and his adopted daughter whom he raised, whose name is Esther. Uh, if you remember, the king um, was looking for a new bride. His good friend said, hey, what you need to find is someone who's really, really pretty. That's what, that's what the good uh, queen would be. So he does that. He finds Esther. Esther's presented to him. And after a night with the king Xerxes, or King Esther, it determines that she will be his bride. So chapters one and two, what they do is they set up the plot, right? And they introduce most of the characters in the story, but is, it is chapter three where we see the antagonist, where we see the villain walk on stage to this story. Now, it's been about a four-year gap between chapters two and three. So from when Esther is made queen till we, what we read today, it's been four years. And now that she's queen, we're going to see crisis loom. There is three points, uh, taking a stand, tempting a king, and trusting a promise. Before we unpack scriptures, let us, let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can worship you. Lord, I ask that 
that as we unpack it, you will use your word to grow us, correct us, Lord, that we may be trained up in righteousness through it. And we just thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you that we can come to your throne of grace and ask these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first point here is taking a stand. If you would, read with me on Esther 3, 1 through 2. It says, After these things, King Asiris promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So we're introduced to the antagonist that is Haman. And this mysterious individual gets a promotion. We, we do not know why. The, the author doesn't seem that it's that important to tell us what made this guy so great. I'd simply say the same way that God raised up Pharaoh to display his power throughout the world, God also raised up Haman so that his faithfulness could be seen amongst his people. But what is of great importance is that Haman was made the right hand man of the king. So highly appointed, right, that people had to bow down. Now, I wanted to clear, clarify this. Bowing at this point wasn't some sort of worship to Haman. Simply, this is a way of recognizing their superior position and that they had a place of authority over you. Maybe the best way to explain it, if you were in the military, it's like saluting your officers, Right? They have a higher position, they have a greater place of authority, and so when you see them, you initiate the salute because it, it is showing and recognizing the sign of respect and authority. It may not be as humiliating as bowing, but the message is the same. Look at verse 2 through 4. It says, But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, Mordecai refuses to pay homage to this Haman. And, and again, it's not that, this, uh, that, that uh, Mordecai was unwilling to bow. He, he would have bowed to Xerxes. No doubt he did bow to Xerxes. Had he not, he would have been killed. The fact that he was breathing was evidence that he had shown respect to his king, but he's just not wanting to show respect to Haman. And notice, right, they continued to ask him day after day. They pleaded with him, like, what's wrong with you? You old fool. Why are you not showing respect to Haman? They wanted to hear his answer to see if the king and his authorities would respect his words. So they're asking him. What's your reason? Do you have a doctor's excuse or something? You got bad knees, arthritis? Surely there's some reason why you're not listening and bending the knee. I notice they continue to ask day after day. It's like, I imagine like uh, you know, when you get pulled over for speeding, I don't know about you, but you know the, the police officer pulls you over Chief is in the back, so he can probably testify to this. But people, they ask typically, uh, do you know how fast you were going? And, we, and, and oftentimes, we, we, by the way, we always know how fast we were going, and we know why we were going that fast. But we quickly try to come up with a reason to justify hoping that our words will stand with the police officer so we can be let go without punishment. I was going with the flow of traffic, officer. I'm a really late officer. My favorite one was, uh, I had a good friend who used to say, my speedometer 
is broken. And they would always get out of a ticket. Not saying that you should do this, and now the chief knows that you've been given that, so he'll remember. But we often right, try to find a good excuse because a bad answer will not stand. So they're asking, why did you not show respect to Haman? Don't you know that disrespecting Xerxes is, or that disrespecting Haman is a disrespect to Xerxes, given that he told you to listen? But finally, Mordecai tells him, this is the reason I'm a Jew. Now, this is not a Daniel moment necessarily, where Daniel, you know, refusing to bow and worship a statue. That's not really what we're seeing here. What it's more like is if one of our deacons, let's say Travis Hatfield, uh, let's say he refused to shake hands with Austin McCoy. And if I went to Travis and said, Deacon Travis, why are you not shaking hands with Austin? Why do you refuse to recognize him? It's as if Travis would say to me, well, I'm a Hatfield, and he's a McCoy. That's what we see here between Haman and Mordecai. So why should a Jew, why would a Jew be unwilling to bow to Haman? Now, I want you to recall, we introduced Mordecai back in chapter 2, and there's a really important detail, and it's very quick. We could quickly skim over and not think of it, think anything of it. He it said he was the son of Kish, which was uh, the royal line of King Saul. If you remember King Saul in the Old Testament. King Saul was the son of Kish, and this line continued, and we see it with Mordecai. So this simply, this detail would be like, you know, I'm the son of a Hatfield. Oh, you're from West Virginia. I'm the son of a McCoy. Oh, you're from Kentucky. These names identified who they're with, but also a location in which they would be identified with. So Haman, identified as the Agagite, right? He, this is simply them saying, you are the royal line from King Amalek. Now, I know many of you right now, I say many, all of you are on the edge of your seat wanting to know deeply and desperately how is it that the Amalekites and how is it that the son of Kish, how, when did this feud begin? I know in your heart you're saying, please tell me. And I have good news for you. I'm going to. I want to do a biblical flashback real quick. So stay with me. This, it started in Exodus, right? As they're traveling, they're at this low point. That is the Jewish people. At this low point, they're thirsty, they're hungry, they, they're, they're uh, complaining. They're saying to Moses, we were better off as slaves back in Egypt. It was at this low point in which they were attacked. Look at Exodus 17.9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, you know the story. Uh, this is where Joshua goes down. He's fighting the, the people of Amalek, and, and Aaron and Hur come to Moses' help as, as the staff is falling, and Israel begins to lose the battle, and then they lift his hand back up, and they begin to win the battle. Amalek would be defeated, but he would remain. The people remained a constant threat to Israel, so much a thorn in the side of Israel that God commands this. Look at Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 20. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail as those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. 
Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all the enemies around you and the land that your Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So eventually, if you know the story, how it works out, the son of Kish, King Saul, would be tasked with killing the people of Amalek. Now God gave them victory in battle, and he said, you need to wipe them all out. And King Saul, in his reckless, sinful behavior, did not listen. He took some, the, the king of Agag, which is the Agagite. He took this royal family line, and he, and he made him a trophy. He took family members and made them trophy, and he left them alive. Now I want to give a side point, a side note here. The reason I have to do a history lesson is because past failures and sins do not die with the transgressor. And all you have to do is think of Adam and his sin and transgressions and how they've impacted you. But our sin and our trauma does not begin with us and it does not end with us. The disobedience of King Saul has major ramifications on people years later. And your sin and your disobedience, no matter what closet you hide it behind, it has ramifications on people outside of yourself. And so, like the story here, Saul would never see how his sin would swell to hurt so many more. Now, if you remember the previous weeks, we saw that Mordecai failed to take a stand, right? He shouldn't have even been in Susa. He should have been back in, in Jerusalem. He should have been back in Israel. He shouldn't have even been there. But where he failed to take a stand prior it's as if he's recognizing, he's grown, and now we see him being obedient, choosing to take a stand, remembering what God had told him to do. And so he makes his position toward Haman clear. I will not show you reverence. I know exactly who you are. I know exactly who you are. You are a people against my God. I'm a Kish. You're an Agagite. And we are at war. Now the locations, uh, it's not so much about Kish or Agag. It's not about where they come from. The, the, these locations identify who they belong to. It was less about geography and more about a relationship with their God. We have a people who belong to a God, who have a covenant with God, but a people who, like we saw it read in Deuteronomy 25, 18, who do not fear God and whose desire is to end and kill God's covenant people. So Mordecai is recalling the words of the Lord. Do not forget. Remember what they did to you. Remember what they want to do to you. Do not forget. And notice as he's showing dissent as he's not willing to bend the knee to the enemy of God. Notice he's not being obnoxious with his defiance. Right? He's not making signs. He's not screaming. He's not posting obnoxious posts on the door. They didn't have Facebook, obviously. But he's not being obnoxious with it. He just refuses to accept Haman's authority, and he's making very clear who he identifies with. I'm a Jew. I worship Yahweh. What Yahweh alone. Now it would have been prudent to just bend the knee. 
Like surely other Jews, other people in his life are going, listen, Mordecai, the, you don't need to rock the boat. You got it good, man. You got a government job. You got insurance. You got a great stuff. You don't need to make a big fuss about this. Keep it quiet. And if he's anything like me, surely in his mind, he would have been saying, listen, Lord, you know, I'm, listen, I'll bend the knee, but you know my heart. I'm not going to bend my heart. Like, I'll let everyone think that I'm being obedient to, to Haman and to, to what you've told me. But you know, you know my heart. I don't really want to do this. But I love it. He doesn't do that. It's not, you could hear it, right, in his mind. You can imagine, I mean, this, is this worth the consequences? Is this worth the snarky remarks? Just bend the knee. All the earth's wisdom would have told him, look, you got it all. Just keep your devotion private. It's a private matter anyways. Just bend the knee. Compromise. Wisdom that leads to compromise is not a wisdom at all, church. So for the first time in the story, after hiding who he belongs to, after telling Esther, hide who you belong to, finally we see growth in Mordecai where he says, yes, I'm a Jew. I worship my Lord Yahweh. Now, compliance is easier, but it cannot be simply what we do. But there's more at stake here than Mordecai's safety, and there's more at stake here than his reputation. Read with me verses 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Assyrus. This is beyond Susa. Now, you might think, man, that is an overreaction. And yes, of course it is. You didn't bow down to me. Not only do I not want to kill you, I want to kill everybody that is related to you. But then again, this story is about two people with two different fathers. Israel's father, who is good and caring, who is covenanted with them. And Amalek, who's doing the will of their father, which Jesus says is Satan himself. Now, the overreaction is just that, right? The desire from the this, from this son of Amalek, from the son of Agag, to wipe out God's covenant people. Now, the beauty of this story, it shows that what is at stake is not just the life of the Jews. What is at stake is the line of a promised seed that was to come and bless and redeem the world and crush Satan's head. And it's similar to why in the New Testament, right? You have Herod who says, kill all the children, Kill them all. Because it is the desire of the father of lies and his offspring to want to keep Christ from coming. Since Genesis 3, it is the goal of the enemy of God's covenant people to lead them to death. So Haman will seek to finish what Amalek started back in Exodus and what the serpent sought to do in the garden, destroy a people of faith. So let's look at second point, tempting a king. Read with me verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Assyrus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
So since Haman has decided he's going to kill the Jews, a year has passed. A year in which he's been planning this one-day purge. A one-day holocaust. And Haman is probably casting lots to determine when he should approach the king with this temptation. And we see it in verse 8. And then Haman said to King Asaphos, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. Do you see what Haman is doing here? And he's playing off the vanity of the king, the king's insecurity, and his lack of wisdom. Now, Haman is stirring the king's anger by pressing and feeding areas of sin. And his pride leads him to fall prey and become complicit with evil. And you can see the ease it is to become complicit. I would argue that each of us have become complicit in some area of sin. Because the situation, and it feeds off a flaw. I think back to when my brother and I were kids. He would, he would sneak out. My brother was, he was the social butterfly. He would sneak out of the window, and they would invite me, but I'm too antisocial to sneak out. I was totally fine by myself in, in my room. But they, they would sneak out to some sort of you know, party or whatnot, and, they would, and, and I, my job was to be the lookout. My job was to make sure that if any parents walked in, I, I gave the excuse. My, my, Jonathan decided to go on a, on a walk to contemplate about deep things, you know, uh, as all 16-year-olds do. <laughs> right? I was complicit with a lie. I was complicit with a deception. But think about it. What did I have to gain from being complicit with that lie? I didn't go out. What did I gain? Well, one, number one, I didn't, want it to feel, I didn't want to feel awkward in our house. I didn't want it to be weird. So I'll be complicit as long as it doesn't feel weird. Also, I didn't want to be the narc brother, right? I didn't mind having a reputation of antisocial, but I didn't want a reputation of being lame. So I wanted to protect that reputation at least, and that's exactly what the king is doing. Think about what Will preached two weeks ago. This king just was humiliated by the Greeks humiliated. They lost a war they should have won. They lost thousands upon thousands of troops and gained nothing. And now he hears about these people within his own kingdom who aren't obeying and listening, and he must set an example. To protect his own reputation as a strong man, he'll have to be complicit with evil protect his own reputation. He'll be complicit with injustice towards others. And as you do some self-reflection, church, I ask yourself, as God looks down on you, do you see, does he see a complicit, prideful, petty, insecure Xerxes in you? Or a type of Mordecai ready to lose it all? Now, listen, Mordecai is not the hero of the story. I don't want to try to make that the case. But I do want to recognize that he's grown quite a bit from chapter 2. He's grown and he's pursuing holiness. And that's honorable. And I love to 
compare this tempted weak king to yours, right? This tempted king Xerxes seeks to gain by killing others, while your king sought to lose his life by the hand of others for your benefit. Xerxes, right? He falls easily to temptation. Our heavenly king, though tempted, had no weakness where sin could fester. And when you study this Xerxes, Asterius, whatever you want to call him, when you study this man, I don't care how the movies portray him as this charming, you know, complex character. He's an evil, weak, pathetic man. I'm not someone who loves to look at our calendar and insert the holiday into the scripture, but if you're looking for a Father's Day moment, look at these two broken men. Mordecai and Xerxes, two very different men, two very broken men. But Xerxes had acquired everything, right? He had all the money, all the power, right? We could imagine. But unlike Mordecai, failed to do what was right, right? Xerxes bent the knee to temptation in order to protect his own reputation. Mordecai, in this, room, in this moment, reflecting call of God is willing to set aside his seat of authority. He's willing to give up his life. Mordecai clings to the promise and ignores the temptation of the flesh that whispers, you're alone. Though Mordecai is not our model, again, he's not the hero here. It is a moment where he's acting Christ-like. Meanwhile, the unwise king bends his ear to the enemy of God. Look at verses 9 through 11. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from the hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. If you're Mordecai, and this this finally reaches your ear, you might be thinking, Lord, what are you doing? I stayed silent for years and never told anyone that I was yours. And the moment I do, now my life and the people that I belong to are threatened. I hid my allegiance, and I was fine. I hid my allegiance, and I was doing great. The first time I share my faith, it now is going to lead to my death. What are you doing? Meanwhile, Haman, an enemy of God, is promoted to second in command. He's given the signet ring. It's like a father giving his child, saying, hey, here's the debit card. Do what you want. Like he's given complete control over the people and over the treasuries. The situation for Mordecai has just gotten much, much worse. And Mordecai is going to learn something that we all need to learn. Is that when we are faithful to God, it draws hostility. 
There is no godly Christian life that does not involve spiritual warfare. If you find your life absent of spiritual warfare, let me have you consider that you may be bending the knee and being complicit with sin and evil. Faithfulness is costly. Jesus promises you that. He tells you it's going to be. Everything Mordecai sought to keep by staying in Susa, now he has to come to grips. If I'm going to be faithful, I got, I got to let it all go. This leads us to our third point, trusting a promise. Look at verses 12 through 13. So then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Asaris and sealed with the king's signet ring, letters sent by couriers uh, to all the king's provinces, instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Death was put into motion. But here's what I love. As Haman was preparing this one-day purge, as he was prepping this final event to kill his people's enemy, the Jewish people would have been preparing for their own event on this 13th day of Adar. They would have been prepping a lamb. They would have been getting ready for Passover. Now, Passover was an event, if you don't know, where God sent his angel of death to the houses uh, of Egypt. Moses had warned the Pharaoh, let my people go. And if you don't, there will be judgment upon your people. He refused to. And so the Jewish people were to commanded to put the blood of the lamb over their door. And as long as they had the blood of the lamb over their door, they would be safe. They were safe as long as they were under the blood. Then the Lord, after this event, has them prepare a meal. A meal called Passover. To remember when God protected them from death and freed them from their bondage. It was on Passover where Jesus instituted communion, where he would remind his people that you are safe as long as you're under the blood of the Lamb. Passover, obviously, is foreshadowing Christ. They ate it to remember the promise given to Abraham that through his seed, one would come and bless and redeem the world. And how fitting is it how fitting is it that as the Persian nation prepares to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, Jews were prepping a meal given by their king that promised life. Two kings, two promises. Their redemption, and by the way, our own redemption was at stake because this would be the family whom Christ would come. So the question was, whose promise would prevail? My death was coming. 
The Jews around the empire prepared a meal that signified a promise. And while they were praying and repenting and worshiping through the breaking of bread, there was another meal taking place, an anti-communion. Let's read about the anti-communion. Verses 14 and 15, a copy of the document was uh, to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. That courier, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king of Haman, or and Haman, sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here, look, the king and Haman having a moment, toasting over the promised death as God's people eat in remembrance of a promised life. Haman, like the serpent in the garden, tickles the ear and feeds the pride, leading this man to the death of many. And the king, like Adam, was weak and bends the knee to temptation. Churches, God's covenant people, we still celebrate the faithfulness of God and celebrate the promise of life. Their Passover, right, it created this anticipation for Jesus, for the promised one, but our communion, it beautifully looks back to the promise kept, a promise given to his people that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A promise echoed through all of Scripture. A promise secured in the resurrection. And church, that's a promise that we should celebrate every morning with every breath. And like we, God tells Moses, do not forget the enemy. We are called to never forget the one who secured us with his covenant, with his promise, everlasting. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out past sermons on the app.